This is The Guardian. Today, the law on strangulation is changing. How will it help survivors of domestic abuse? Before we start, a warning that in this episode we discuss domestic assault in detail and mention suicide. If you're a victim, it's terror, absolute terror, and it can happen at any time and without any warning. Yvonne Roberts has been reporting on domestic violence for decades. This year, she's been leading the Observer's campaign to end femicide, the intentional killing of a woman by a man because of her gender. After stabbing, the most common way that happens is by strangulation, external pressure to the neck that cuts off air or the flow of blood to the brain. What I found really surprising is how little pressure you need to use to exercise on the neck for a woman or, or a man, whoever's strangled, to lose consciousness. It's just marginally more than it takes to open a can of Coke, for example. And I don't think Gosh. people understand how dangerous that is. Strangulation is about demonstrating control. In her reporting, Yvonne has come across hundreds of stories of men who have strangled women not to kill them, but to show that they could if they chose to. There's one piece of research in which a woman uh, has a relationship, gets engaged, gets married, perfectly normal, no sign of violence. And then on her honeymoon, there's an argument. Her husband goes and gets a towel from the bathroom and strangles her to the point that she loses consciousness. For the remainder of the several years that she was in that relationship, the towel became symbolic of what could happen to her. What the perpetrator wants is for the victim to be completely and utterly attuned to his every desire and need and his, his various moods so that life is dictated by how he's feeling, nothing else. An estimated 20,000 cases of non-fatal strangulation are reported to women's charities every year. The law has been failing to protect those who are being abused. The perpetrators are often only charged with common assault, which carries a sentence of up to six months in prison. Many people aren't charged with any crime, and they carry on. But this week, in England and Wales... Non-fatal strangulation and suffocation becomes a specific offence. Someone found guilty of it could go to prison for five years. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the new law on strangulation and why it's needed. Rachel, can you take me back to before you got married? What was your life like? I was always, you know, outgoing, had lots of friends, always quite popular in school. You know, I've always been sort of strong character, strong-willed, you know, hating injustice. Um, I met my oldest son's father when I was relatively young, fell pregnant for Josh when I was 18. So um, that was sort of my, f my first sort of serious relationship, which, which finished. Um, and then from that, then I, I met Darren. 
And what was it that you found charming about him? He was very witty. Uh, he made me laugh, which, you know, I, I, I do like a good, good laugh. Used to pick me up in, a, in his car, you know, bring sweets for Josh. Yeah. So then how quickly did things progress in your relationship? So I was 21 when I met Darren. I had Jack when I was 23 then. So that progressed really quickly and that is absolute massive red flags um, as we know now when a perpetrator sort of comes in very quickly. When was it that things started to feel different, that he started to become abusive towards you? I was seven months pregnant and we'd had a, a disagreement downstairs and I can remember going up the stairs um, and at that point then he came bounding up the stairs and we got, you know, bearing in mind as well, he was a large male, six foot seven, 22 stone bodybuilder with a 60 inch chest. He came bounding up the stairs and I was um, in the corner of the room between the wardrobe and the bed and, um, and I swung around to say something to him. At that point then his hands went straight around my throat and he lifted me off the floor and he told me, let me go when my lips turned blue. And that was actually his words. He just fell to his knees, um, cried like a baby. Um, and I'd never seen a, you know, a grown man cry before. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's really remorseful, you know, and he was sobbing. Um, and I'd already had the story about his upbringing. He was brought up in a violent household. Um, and he just, you know, I had that in the back of my mind thinking, you know, he's, he's quite a broken individual, you know, we can get over this, I can fix him sort of thing. And as you look back on that, that first horrific, you know, physical warning of how dangerous he was, why do you think he was doing it? It's, it's the power and the control, isn't it? They like to have the power and, and control. It's about exercising control. It's about saying very clearly, the rules that count are my rules. And if you, if you don't behave, this is what will happen to you. You can't generalise in every case, but quite often there's a pattern of abuse, which includes coercive control. And strangulation is a part of that and Yvonne, you've been reporting on how strangulation is used as a weapon, as part of domestic abuse. Do we know on what scale that's happening in the UK? A woman that dies every fortnight as a result of strangulation, but the new legislation is actually focused on non-fatal strangulation. And from what we know from charities, from women's charities and women's organisations, around 20,000 women a year suffer from non-fatal strangulation, which is not part of consensual sex. Non-fatal strangulation, perpetrators often do that several times over. And if you are in a relationship where this is used as a coercive tool, you're seven times more likely to die as a result of being killed by a man. Physically, what does being strangled do to somebody? In the past, people thought that if somebody wet themselves, for example, or pooed themselves, that was because of fear. What we now know is that means that they're very, very close to death. Cutting off the air to the brain inevitably has, has an impact on, on all your neurological senses. So it will vary according to how long you blacked out for. And it won't always be visible. It's not the marks on the neck or the bloodshot eyes, it's actually what's going on in terms of brain damage, in terms of memory loss, in terms of the inability of somebody to remember what's just occurred. So it has multiple problems for the victim. 
the strangulation, um, choking, throttling, whatever sort of terminology you want to use, um, that was quite a frequent thing that happened over the 18 years. Um, at one point, I was left with his with bruises um, around my neck. Um, but because I always recovered and there was worse things that he used to do, like, you know, spitting my... I used to think that was the worst thing he used to do was spitting in my face because I felt really dirty after it. Or he'd do mm. sly punches at the back of the head and stuff like that. So for me, then the strangulation part, because I always recovered, I thought, you know, oh, you know, it's not that bad. <laughs> mm. God. As you were going through all of this, did you report it to the police? There was a couple of silent 999 calls that I had done. Um, and the, the police did actually come to the house the one day. And I went down the stairs and I said, oh, you know, everything's all right. Just had an argument. Uh, and Darren obviously was breathing down, down my neck and come down the stairs too. Um, but yet the police never at the time said, you know, well, Darren ate, we want to speak to Rachel on her own. They never separated us. And, and we know victims are not going to stand on the door and say, oh my goodness, yes, you know, he's done this, that and the other whilst he's there. And you stayed with him for so many years. Can you tell me about what that was like day to day? I mean, how did his moods change? Yeah, so abusers, they're not horrible all the time and that's what's so confusing when you're, you're in it because that person who is abusing you will also be comforting you after the abuse. So it's really sort of confusing as a victim. You know, it's almost like you can't see the wood for the trees. I can remember one particular week I had three bouquets of flowers for him, for, for him apologising for different incidents that had happened. You know, I've got cards written that I've still got where it says, you know, I'm sorry, uh, thanks for sticking by me. I'm sorry, I'm a bit of an effing nutter. Um, you know, I'm from your mad husband. You know, cards sent to me like this. You know, he knew what he was doing. As a victim and a survivor, you were constantly just thinking, they're going to change, they're going to change. You just hang on to that hope. Because you know when you do actually leave, there will be some consequence in some way, shape or form. And Darren used to say to me constantly, you know, uh, Ragley used to say, there's only one way out for you and that's in a wooden box. Yvonne, you said earlier that strangulation often doesn't leave physical marks. And so when somebody turns up at hospital or at their GP surgery because they've been harmed, are healthcare professionals trained to know what signs to look for? The problem is if you go to A&E or to a GP surgery, they just don't have the expertise in this. And what's more alarming is... At the moment, and, and if you, you, you have to have been also sexually assaulted in order to go to a sexual assault referral centre where you might find the right level of expertise. So that's why it's so important to have proper training. If we're not doing that, knowing what to ask for and what to look for, which includes doing, for example, an MRI scan to see what the damage is to the brain, you're not then being able to go to the police and go to Crown Prosecution Services and say, look, this is a case of non-fatal strangulation. And if you can get beyond that, in terms of the law itself, up until this week in England and Wales, if somebody was strangled by another person against their consent, what laws had been in place to protect them? If there's a conviction at all, it's for common assault. So it's just an, it's an assault, which means that you, get, you might get a couple of months um, or several months in prison. 
it hasn't been recognised as a, as a crime as serious as it is. And, and especially because it's such a red flag to escalating damage to the victim. So the last incident where that was, that was it, that was when the light switch went off and I thought, I don't care what's going to happen, I've got to get out of this, it was on the 9th of July 2011 and we'd had a row uh, in that morning um, and I can remember being out the kitchen sobbing by the back door, just tears running down my face and the next thing then, Darren's heavily breathing over my neck saying, well, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And I said, do you know what? I've had a guts full of you, I'm leaving. And at that point, as I walked through the kitchen into the living room, this was about 7.30 in the morning, his hands went round my neck again and he started shaking me. That was the most fierce strangulation that I'd had. And he started shaking me really ferociously. Um, and we both fell on the floor. And the next thing then I can remember looking up and both my boys were stood there. Josh uh, was, I think he was, was he like 20 at the time? He was doing a silent 999 call and Jack stood there with a baseball bat. He was, he was 16. Um, and at that point then, Dan realised that they were both there watching and he jumped up and was like, oh my God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, the kids went back in their bedrooms um, I was pulled up the stairs by my hands and I knew at that point exactly what Darren was going to do. Um, he, he wanted to become the victim then. So he was trying to get out one of his um, hunting knives out of the drawer and he managed to get it out. And at that point then, Jack came out of the bedroom and I said, go on, go on, slit your wrist in front of your 16-year-old son, thinking I was going to shame him to put the knife back in the drawer. And I managed to get down to the bottom of the stairs. And by the time I did, Jack shouted, no, mummy's done it. And that's oh what he'd done. He'd, he'd cut his wrist. And at that point then, I thought, well, if he's capable of doing that in front of his 16-year-old son, what else is he capable of doing? And that was when I decided i got to get out of this. So how did you... I knew I had to give a statement to the police um, and it took so much courage to actually go in that police station and give a long historical statement to the police. But I did it and that was what started the ball rolling. And then Darren knew then I wasn't coming back. And did they charge him? They eventually got him and they charged him with common assault. Wow. <laughs> After all the details that you'd given them? That, that was the charge? Yeah, common assault. For the, for the strangling? For the strangulation, yeah. Yeah. Before the final event that happened, he actually went back to court and the lay magistrates lifted all the bail restrictions the day before the final uh, act of violence, should I say. And what was that? So the 18th of August, first of all, the police came to the house and said they wanted to put um, a panic room turn my bedroom into a panic room and I'm like really and they said yeah we, we want to send a team up to to reinforce your bedroom door so they reinforced my bedroom door double skinned it and they put a metal bar over the back of it and that is what I had to put on when I went to bed this metal bar so I basically barricaded myself in the bedroom mm -hmm. they put all alarms on the windows and everything else so obviously they were anticipating something um, I went to work the following day in the hairdressers 
And I can remember going to work really sort of feeling like I had my life back, but not because I had this great big knot in my stomach. And I can honestly say that I've experienced now when people say that that you can swallow, that is what I was experiencing that morning. I just was anticipating something. So I was finishing blow drying a lady's hair. So I'd gone to the the counter with her to to take payment for, for her hair. And just as I was giving her a change back, all of a sudden, the shop sort of went quite dark. So it was a lovely sunny day. And it was almost like there was something outside obscuring the light. And when I looked to the door, in his walking Darren, filling the door frame with a bag in front of him, and I could see him reach into the bag, and then he pulled out this sawn off shotgun. And at that point then, um, I don't know why I'd done it, but I ran towards him and not from him. I think probably maybe sub- subconsciously I thought there's no way out the back way, there's nowhere for me to go if he did come in. And I started wrestling with him for the gun. And, you know, I'm not much of a match. You know, I was five foot eight and probably weighed about ten and a half stone then because I'd lost quite a bit of weight with all the stress. Then I can remember being hit on the head with the butt of the gun at that point, I fell on the floor. Um, there was an old woman on the floor. So this is a busy salon on a Friday afternoon. There was a couple of elderly clients sat under the dryers. There was an old lady on the floor next to me, Connie, who was in her 90s. And she was shouting at him, go on, get out of here, get out of here. Um, I can remember looking down and seeing the phone on the, on the floor. So I tried to press the, re- the, 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 the receiver to get a line and really feeling really weak that I couldn't even press the nine properly on there. And then I looked up then at Darren and I said, for God's sake, you know, think of Jack, think of Jack. And his eyes were almost like a shark. They were like black. And I pulled my knees up under my chin into a fetal position. He'd aimed the gun at my chest, told me he loved me and pulled the first trigger, which my left leg took, um, took that blast. And then the next thing then, I felt a blast to the side of my head. Thankfully, it missed. Um, the next thing then, I could see the gun, put the gun down on the floor to the left of me. And it was a silver ornate engraving on it gun. And I can remember grabbing that and I must have had, I don't know, some supernatural strength. That's all I can say, Hannah. And he couldn't retrieve the gun from me. So at that point then, I can remember being kicked under the chin um, and being absolutely pummeled all over. Um, And then the next thing, he was gone. Um, And I can remember then all the blue lights, the police, everything. I remember uh, one of the ladies saying, come on, don't go to sleep, don't go to sleep. I need my hair done. And I just can remember feeling absolutely drained. I can remember looking at my my left leg, which took the shot. And there was a huge hole in my jeans and all this orange liquid was seeping out. Um, And then I was taken off to hospital. Certainly, I think somebody upstairs was looking after me that day because, you know, I shouldn't be here. He could have killed me with his bare hands. You know, he was an absolute lunatic, um, you know, and he, and he had a gun. Um, and I'm here to tell the, the, the tale. And thankfully, then I was told later on in that evening, they'd found him, he killed himself, which was such a blessing because I know if he had not have killed himself then I would have had to have gone into witness protection probably in another country um, because he would never have left me alone. What happened next? So I was recovering six weeks in hospital and Jack 
um, went to stay, chose to stay with Darren's family. And I came out of hospital on the Friday. Um, I hadn't had any contact with Jack since the day of the shooting, which was when he came to see me. And his words to me were, I didn't think he'd do it. And I said, Jack, I knew he would. And then on the Monday, um, the police phoned to say that Jack had gone missing from Darren's family's member's house and they couldn't locate him. And then I had a call a few hours later to say that he'd been found and he'd killed himself. And that's what they do, these perpetrators. And, you know, and, and I don't think they realise the damage that they are causing, especially to the children. If they love their children, you know, they mm. just wouldn't do that to them. Coming up, the law has changed this week to try and help survivors of strangulation. What can it achieve? Yvonne, survivors of domestic abuse have been campaigning for years for the law to change, to reflect how damaging non-fatal strangulation is. And they've finally been successful. So from this week in England and Wales, it is a specific offence. What does the law provide? From today, if somebody is non-fatally strangled, so it doesn't end in death, and there is the forensic evidence gathered at the time, then a possible charge of non-fatal strangulation as a standalone offence could lead to a prison sentence of five years. There's an important distinction to be made here about consent because strangulation is something that can be part of sex if it's done in a consensual way. Is there any risk that under this new law people could be prosecuted for that? If, if that happens, then it's unlikely to lead, lead to an offence. I mean, nobody's going to be charged if both, both parties are agreeing. If it goes too far, as it were, as some, as some perpetrators might say, if there's serious harm, you cannot claim that it was consensual. That is no longer a defence. And I'm interested in what training the police are going to get on how to spot the signs that someone has been strangled, those non-visual signs you talked about. I know that across the US... The law has been changing state by state over the past few years to make non-fatal strangulation a criminal offence. Do you know what sort of training the police there have been having? The, the Institute for Strangulation Prevention was, was set up in 2011 and it was set up by two lawyers who since then have trained thousands and thousands of trainers who go out all over the states and continue to train. So that includes the gathering of evidence, it includes looking after a victim, it includes properly gathering forensic evidence and how to record the information. You know, training brings confidence. And, uh, and, and also, if you're trained, you start to see with different eyes. And the more you see with different eyes, the stronger your confidence grows in, a, in your ability to detect when somebody's coming forward who is... Uh, often, often they'll be in denial... I mean, they'll say it was an accident, you know, strangulation was an accident or it didn't mean to happen or um, it went too far or whatever the excuse is. So it's really important that the, that the professional knows what to look for, what to ask, what to record, who to contact, 
that's 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 collating evidence that actually will strengthen the seriousness with which the whole system takes the issue. So is that sort of training going to be brought in in England and Wales? Well, not so far as we know. Um, and at, at the minute, the only training that, that, that exists is this two half days in, in June and July, organised initially by volunteers, uh, to which over 3,000 people have, have, uh, have applied to, to, to join. So there is a huge demand. But uh, this should be something that government is commissioning. Commissioners are commissioning, uh, you know, in their local areas. It, it requires an, a, a kind of nationwide strategy, England and Wales. It needs, it needs a proper strategy. If you've got 20,000 women a year being non-fatally strangled and one woman every fortnight dying because she's been strangled, something needs to happen. I can hear the passion in your voice for this, right? As somebody who's been reporting on this issue for so many years, and we're now at a point where we've got this positive change in the law that should be able to empower victims. But it sounds like its effect may be stunted by a lack of resources being put towards training the people who need to be spotting these offences. The frustration is that, that people know what would make a difference. We know, we know there aren't enough police around, for example. We know there isn't enough money put into training. We know that the investigation of, of, of rape, which is often a part of a coercively controlling relationship, is derisory. All of these things could be fixed, but it does require somebody at cabinet level who takes hold of it and makes it their mission. Over the years, I've spoken to thousands of victims and survivors, and not one of them have said they hadn't been strangled or throttled or choked. And for me then, it was like, wow, you know, they all they all use the same tactics, and they're all using this as a power. Um, because, you know, something we've got to recognise is non-fatal strangulation is not normally a failed homicide. It's to say that I can if I want to. You know, we know 20,000 victims are strangled each year, uh, non-fatally strangled. We know it's the second biggest killer, um, mainly in, in female homicides, after stabbing. You know, and when I started looking into it, and, you know, and like I said, I downplayed my strangulation because I always recovered. And a lot of victims and survivors who I've spoken to also downplayed it. And it was just something that had to be done because, again, I've heard of, of, of the same charges common assault you know it's not common assault it's not even abh it's not gbh this is something more serious um, and i'm so glad now that this is a standalone charge which will carry up to a five-year custodial sentence if this law had been in place when you were going through that abuse at darren's hands when he strangled you and if the law was working as it's intended to, what difference do you think it would have made? Well, hopefully he would have been locked up, which would have given me, you know, a couple of years breathing space to really sort of gather my thoughts and understand what I was going to do next. You know, um, I just I just think it would have it would have really helped me in in a way of thinking that that the professionals want to do something. My judiciary system want to help me as a victim you know they want to lock the perpetrator up for doing such horrific violent acts 
it would have shown him as well that he couldn't do it and get away with it. That was Rachel Williams and Yvonne Roberts. Thank you to them both for speaking to me. If you or someone you know is going through domestic abuse, please know that help is available. You can contact the National Domestic Violence Helpline any time of the day on 0808 2000 247. We also talked about suicide in this episode. You can call Samaritans on 116 123 or email them joe, that's J-O, at samaritans.org. Finally, I want to mention that Dom Phillips, who's written for The Guardian for a long time, has disappeared in Brazil, along with Bruno Pereira, the Brazilian indigenous expert he was travelling with. They were seen last at the weekend in the Javari region of Amazonas state near the border with Peru. A Guardian spokesperson said, we're very concerned and we're urgently seeking information. And Dom's family is calling on the Brazilian government to use all the power at their disposal to find the missing men. Today's episode was produced by Josh Kelly and sound designed by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.